And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And back to we've had a we've had a couple interview. I think I think we've done two interviews this year. Yeah, we had we had our we had our uh, annual summary with Dimitri Kafinas, and then Chase and I did a little something. But this is like this is to kick off the normal cycle. Even Chase's and my discussion was about particularly last week, meaning markets were right on breakout levels across the board. A lot of data was coming out. And so we just did an episode focused on that. So this is our first normal interview cycle interview of the year. And it's only right that we kick it off with another part of what I refer to as our brain trust, the portfolio manager of our, uh, of our momentum portfolio and the CEO of Ascent Systematic Advisors, my partner, Mr. Marcos Bueno. Marcos, thank you for joining us today, man. How are you? Thank you for having me, Zach. It's an honor to be the first of the regular schedule. <laughs> it's an honor. Could be somewhat of a dubious honor. I, you know, we got to see in some circles, it's not exactly going to, uh, it's not exactly. Uh, we're going to make it easy for the next guest. Like, to clear the bar. Yeah, there, yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, we set the bar low. Right. Uh, so I always tell people if I'm trying to get somebody to come on the come on the podcast, I'm like, don't worry, you're going to sound incredible. OK, <laughs> I put down a really favorable comp uh, for our guests. It's like quarter to quarter. Right. You're like, yeah, it wasn't I'm a great to quarter, to the guy last week. Awesome. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, man, a lot has happened, obviously, since the last time you and I have discussed. I've got a whole list of stuff that I want to talk to you about, but why don't we do this? Why don't you kind of just start off, give us your lay of the land. And, and, and I, I always like to get this information from you because uh, you're kind of a, in, in the investing world, I think a lot of our listeners know you really fall under two categories in the world of investing, right? You're a fundamental investor. Or you're a, you're a, a tactical investor. You're a technical investor or uh, trader. Um, you're, you're really a hybrid mix of the two. You've spent some time in the macro world, in the fundamental, you know, research side of it. Um, you've got a very adequate fundamental chops. At the same time, you run a quant strategy. You've been on all sides of it, which I think gives you kind of an interesting 360 degree view on a lot of things. So kind of give us your 360 degree view on where we're at economically, markets wise, what we're looking at. And, you know, you can talk technicals, fundamentals, but just kind of want to see your your 360-degree view of the world we're in today and, and where you, we think it's headed. Um, where to start? I think that is not an easy question to answer, but I'll do my best. Um, I think it's <laughs> useful to give a little bit of context, a background of uh, where we are coming from and what my views have been over the last two years. and what I see now and how my views have evolved since. So about two years ago, uh, remember you and I were talking about this, maybe even a bit longer than that. But two years ago, I was um, pretty convinced that we were going to go into sort of like a choppy period in the market. That we're going to be in a sideways, broad range uh, phase of the market. I did not know how long it's going to last, but kind of happened. Uh, it was broader than, it was wider than I anticipated. Uh, but on late 2021, early 2022, uh, 
in my letters to investors, I always said, I don't think this is a good market. I think that we're going into an environment in which rates may go up and I see a lot of froth in the market and I think that this needs to be corrected. And lo and behold, it's kind of what happened. Um, I think the market needed that um, digestion of the interest rates. I was not, not super bearish in the sense that I did. I was not expecting uh, a crash. Uh, I saw, I think the prices are elevated. Um, most of the market cap is concentrating into a few companies that are not cheap, but then they're good businesses. They're not completely overpriced. Uh, so we probably need to correct that to some extent. And I also think that if we fall, uh, we're going to have support from the government in one way or another. So we may fall, but it's supported. At the same time, I cannot be bullish here because I don't I don't really see the upside. Um, now, my view today is a little different. Um, I think we have gone through that period. It just went down and up. I was expecting, to be fair, a more like up, down, up, down, up, down. And there was a little bit of that, but not really much. It was pretty much all down and in 2022 and then all up in 2023. Um, very confusing market, particularly in 2023. Uh, but it looks like the market has digested um, higher rates. Um, we have seen, we have gone through a period of cleansing, I think. Um, we talked about that offline where I think we have, we are back to having creative destruction. Something we did not have during probably 10 to 12 years. Rates were too low, uh, capital was too cheap, and couldn't get return on bonds or anything fixed income. So risk-free rate being at zero or negative meant that a lot of money was invested in literally whatever, in financing uh, money-losing businesses, um, businesses that were destroying value, and that was actually hurting good businesses because the businesses that care about profitability, profitability, uh, value, um, they couldn't compete with people that didn't care about that. So that was not good for the growth. They were not good for um, for wealth creation. And then when rates go up, all that capital misallocation kind of disappears because now you have to compete with 5% rates. Uh, now profits do matter. Um, I think all that um, non-profit, non-profitable tech, it's basically disappeared. It was the flavor of the times two years ago. And I think that resources are better allocated. And I also had this hypothesis that maybe higher rates are better for the economy as a whole, because basically you don't have all these like value-destroying businesses sucking away capital, and then capital can actually be deployed into more useful uh, more value-creating uh, opportunities. And then if you run a good business and you care about running a good business, now you can grow. Now you can hire. Now you can sell. Now you can, you're not competing with people that don't care about making money, and base, which is bad for all of us. So I think that my impression is that we are seeing the benefit of that today. Um, we are seeing a lot of fiscal impulse. Um, <laughs> and those things two combined... Um, I think that now that we have broken to all-time highs, when I see kind of the breadth of 
things that are doing well, how things that were typically in, in the ARC ETF or like the non-profitable index from Goldman, they're basically, they went down and they never took off from there. So that tells me that the market is a little bit discriminating and we see the great companies that make a lot of money, Max 7 ripping, but we see a lot of industrials doing well. We see other sectors doing well. Um, not all of the sectors, but I think the market is discriminating. Um, and that is fairly positive. Now, we are in a situation in which the, the big tech companies are getting more and more of the market cap, so they have a big influence in the market, but they are doing well. Um, and they are expensive in some cases. Um, I mean, you talked about that all the time, and I agree with that. But at the same time, at the same time, um, who is stronger than them? Uh, very few, right? Well, so no, and 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 to get to get to to to, to address that, um, I think that there are some. I think that when you look at the multiple on a Facebook and a Google, though, uh, I think it's very hard to argue that those are overpriced, especially comparing them to other stocks in the market. I mean, you saw that last quarter from Facebook. Yeah. I look, I don't care how bearish you are or what you think or whatever. 23% revenue year over year growth in this environment. I, I, I you're blowing the doors off, man. And at that size and and that that appears to be ex- reacceleration yeah. in their growth, right? Like so I, you know, and then the margins, I mean, these companies, and, and, and this is one of the things that I've been thinking about Marco. So we've had this, we've had this discussion, uh, uh, several times and, um, I am really working on letting go of some bitterness from 2023. And, you know, the majority of the bitterness is I, I put it on myself, meaning one of my thoughts going into 2022 was I thought tech was going to get hammered short tech, long energy, right? Um, and like probably virtually every other active value manager in the world. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I wish I, you don't usually see trade setups that clear. And that was just, a, that was a beautiful one. Um, but one of my thoughts was to be very mindful. Our strategy going into the year was to be very mindful that we were going to maintain our fang holdings, you know, those types of companies that we owned, And we were going to feed them with profits from shorting the index. Right. And, and, and my logic to that was, I believe these companies are non-economic anymore, meaning I, I do not think that they are subject to normal cyclicality that most companies are. And, 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 and by saying that, I'm not saying that their earnings can't go down over a period of time. What I'm saying is in a recession, you can almost make the argument that their multiple should expand because even if their earnings drop, they have the ability to steal massive amounts of market share, especially in tough times. You know what I mean? They got a war chest, right? Like nothing is really going to disrupt those companies from, you know, taking care of and taking advantage of weakness. The, the other thing that me and Chase were speaking about, Marcos, and, and, and I want to get, I'm setting this up because I want your opinion and I, I, and I want you to kind of give your rendition of these companies. And let's face it, right? These are the companies everybody's facing. If you've got them, you're performing. If you do, don't, you don't, you're not, right? Um, which is going to lead us into a fascinating conversation about momentum type of uh, funds last year, because I thought those were fascinating results. By the way, the performance of your momentum fund was really favorable compared to the uh, in compared to the universe, last it, year. it was a frustrating. You know, year, that was a nonetheless, but thank you. Yeah, 
It, it, well, I mean, I, this is going to be a really interesting talk because I know you know what I'm talking about. It was frustrating for you, but you put it in light of a lot of the other momentum funds out there, and it was pretty stinking good. Um, I don't know if you were in the top quintile or what it was, but I mean, you you know, definitely better than most. But anyway, looking at these companies saying, okay, in my opinion, these things are, like I said, you know, not subject to uh, <clears throat> to the to the slings and arrows of, of you know, of of economic volatility. And th then you add in the factors that you and I have spoken about, about this being a different market and probably deserving generally of secularly higher valuations, just because of government and fed intervention and central bank involvement and all these different things. Um, how do we, how do we look at these? How do we look at these companies? What, what, how should we look at the valuations? And then at some point, what does that mean when you've got a small handful of companies that, you know, I, I don't think it's a stretch to think that those companies are, well, they're certainly on a trajectory to do this, but, you know, in the next five years becoming, in terms of their underlying value, becoming 75, 80% the entire size of the U.S. economy. Um, you know, so it's, it, it, it one part you're taking your hat off and going, you guys have built unbelievable machines. You know, these businesses are unbelievable, right? There's, they're really unprecedented yes. historically. At the, same side, at the same time, they're swallowing the entire world, right? And what does that mean when you've got a small handful of corporations that, are, that have as much power as the third biggest country in the world? And that their their wealth together is the equivalent of the U.S. economy or close to it. I I just I don't know what I don't know how to categorize it. And I don't know how to um, think about it. Putting the valuation question aside for now, uh, if we look at them as sort of like a business, uh, they really have a grip on the world's economy. Massive. Uh, over the last twenty years, we have become more and more digital more and more internet-based. A lot of commerce goes through that. A lot of information goes through that. Um, everything that goes through our phones goes through them. Um, so they're really at the bedrock of the digital life, right? And they really have a tall booth for everybody that wants to go through that. There, there, is no, there is no single business that can live without Google Ads, for example. Uh, there is no apps on your phone that can survive without paying Apple. Hey, Bulwark Capital doesn't use Google Ads. Oh, no, you do, but <laughs> we, we have businesses in my own family. We, uh, we know that we sell furniture. Uh, my brother does. So without Google Ads, it's hard. And they, I mean, we know we know that if, we, if, if Google says, okay, now price is double, we'll pay it. Facebook, Facebook same, too. Same. And, 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 Facebook, yeah. yeah. When, when I hear people say, when I hear people go, we we can't, uh, we don't know how to get good leads, and I'm like, dude, get out of here. Fa like, look, the marketing that we do, it works better than Facebook ads, but our budget's a lot bigger. For bang for the buck, when we were starting Bulwark out, you know, trying to get people to show up to seminars and things like that, you know, looking looking for an audience, the, the bang for your buck is it, it, nothing compares. Yeah. So so they could raise the prices easily. Uh, I mean, YouTube is a mm -hmm. is is a monster. Um, my kids spend more time on YouTube than they spend on TV, on cable, or Netflix. Way more. Um, 100%. even Netflix. Do your kids ever, do your kids ever watch this typical gamer? Have you heard of this typical gamer? No. Have you heard of this guy? 
My, 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 my boys, if I let them now, we we're we're very tight on screen time in our house. My wife's actually got a beautiful plan that she instituted. If you want to, if you want screen time, a minute of screen time for a minute of reading. Yeah. So you got to get your reading in. Right. But these, they, they would spend hours watching other people. Yeah. Play mine do the games. same. My boys and I don't get it, but. I mean, but I, what you and that? I spend time looking at people carrying a, a football, right? So, I mean, it's the same. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. That, I, okay. I hadn't thought about it that true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so then Amazon, the cloud, I mean, Netflix couldn't exist without them. Uh, and Netflix could potentially do it without them. But so many other companies, even hedge funds cannot do with the Amazon cloud or, I mean, I run all my business on the Google cloud. Yeah, and and it, they they could ten x the price. I probably would do the same. Um, well, and that's what I'm saying. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, the, the the way Chase said something the other day that I thought was so apt, and it just smacked me right in the face. And I've heard other people talk about it, but I haven't heard really anybody drill down. And you know, we're always in this business trying to comp these times to other times, right? I've heard a lot of guys try to comp this to 1929. I've heard a lot of people try to comp it to 99 and 2000. I've used some of those analogies sometimes. You know, the one I think that fits the best is the Gilded Age, the turn of the century, right? I think that's what really comps yeah. to this time. Do, do you see um, that? I have to admit that I'm an ignorant historically in many aspects, and I don't have a good handle on the Gilded Age. But basically what ended that was uh, antitrust, right? Which is was my next my next step. Basically, you have these natural monopolies at the end of the day where they get in such a position that they is is a flywheel, right? The bigger they get, the easier it is for them to get bigger. They have a strength hold. They, if, and something that they do actually is that whenever somebody wants to compete with them, because everybody, when they start, it's small. They just go out and buy them. And they... <laughs> no, okay. So, okay. So this blew my mind. Okay, this blew my mind. If you and they're good at it, man, they got fingers everywhere. We, you know, the private company that I'm on the board of, right? We go down, yeah, we go down to CES. We're there. Um, we had, we got reached out to without even, without even discussing them. And we've touched some of these companies before, but they are aware of us and met with, we did five and a half million in revenue last year. We met with Microsoft, Amazon, uh, Tesla. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hyundai, uh, uh, we we met with uh, uh, Facebook, Meta. Um, they those big behemoths knew about a five and a half million dollar audio company, right, which is amazing. Like right? these guys, like it's you unbelievable. Drop in the ocean, and if and you they think they're oh yeah, and 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 that blew. I mean, obviously, we were excited about it, yeah. you know. And we're working with those guys on several deals. They're going to be game changers for us. But the fact that they knew, you know, and that it just blew my mind because I sat there and I went, unless that was the thing. And I've said this before, but that was that experience down in Las Vegas that iced it for me. I sat there and I went, if the I think the only threat to the flywheels these guys have built is is government. Yeah. I, I really do. Yeah. It's legislation. Otherwise, because they they know about the businesses in the past that got lazy and sat rested on their laurels and 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 got caught. They know that they've learned those lessons and they're not yeah, going to no, let I, it happen. And they've got the cash yeah, no, to let it happen. They they do. And actually, what is this law that was changed about ten years ago about campaign finance? Basically, um, allowed basically unlimited 
campaign financing from businesses and interest groups. Um, that is a godsend for these companies. Um, because what is a lot of money for a politician in terms of campaign or support or whatever is nothing for these companies. So they have no. they have no. an immense power in Washington. Uh, I think that it's not random that uh, Jeff Bezos bought a home in D.C., a big one. I think that the, the largest, most expensive home in the D.C. area he bought. Um, that's not a place you, know you go is, for fun. The, no, no, no. But you know what that is him doing? That's him lifting his leg and minturating upon the neighborhood yeah. fire hydrant. He's marking his territory, right? He's saying, hey, you got to you gotta come kiss the ring, baby. And here you can line up right outside this gate. So he did not buy this to go there on vacation or hang out. Um, no, no, no. Um, and he didn't buy it, I don't think. It's my impression. He didn't like it because uh, – he didn't buy it because he likes politicians yeah. and wants to hang out so with them either. I think the second HQ is going to be around D.C., right, as well. So, I mean, he's um, – when Xi Jinping comes to the U.S. to meet the president, who is there? Uh, Team Apple. Uh, who is there? Like, is, is there all these guys? Um, they're tight. I think they're tight with politicians uh, because the, the risk to their hey. business is antitrust, and they don't want that to happen, obviously. I, you know, furthermore, I, I, I think it's probably well. We'll see in this next election cycle, but um, I think it's I think it is almost impossible to get elected president if those big companies are against you. Not impossible, but um, I think it's close. Yeah, I mean, is they can do a lot of damage because Google controls the flow. Uh, I mean, Amazon basically Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Um. Yeah, there's a, you don't you don't have the support. It's like it's hard to get past. Um, so yeah, so that that's the that's the thing yeah, is that when you have these two things together, where you have these natural monopolies that have tremendous pricing power if they want to, um, I think they have they don't raise prices too aggressively because that's when the public will get upset, and that may upset the Apple card in Washington because uh, you, you, people, you cannot be hated too much, only a little bit, right? But, but still. Can, can you imagine, can you imagine if we, if, if you ran a business where you thought that was a, that was a profit constraint? You're like, yeah, we could dial up the margins another 20 or 30%, but we're going to tick off the folks. They're going to have to pay it, right? but we, we don't want to ramp up the ante. I mean, you know, we, we can beg on them all you want, but it really is incredible. You know what I mean? They are businesses that have gotten so powerful. Yeah, yeah but all of us, all of us are the, I mean, are, are the frog in the pot, but they're just turning the fire yeah. slowly. Like, like Google and they started charging people $2 for their email. And like, I don't know, you've been 10 years on Gmail. There's no way you can change. If you've been ten years on the i on the iCloud uh, email and you have like literally two hundred thousand emails and all yours, it's just basically your filing cabinet. There's no way you. If they tell you now it's three dollars a month, okay, you pay three dollars. If they tell you now it's from zero to twenty, maybe you 
But if they do that over five years, you end up paying $15 a month for your email, right? And it will still be okay if they do it slowly. Yeah. Uh, so they go from, yeah. let's say, two, $3 a month to $15 a month over like literally 500 million people um, or more, right? So it's a tremendous you know, I, growth I, embedded in it if they want to pull the levers, right? Um, so that's the, that's that. But now, what is the fair price for that? Um, you and I have on the investment meetings talked about Microsoft at 13 times sales. Microsoft is a $3 trillion market cap. Um, they have good margins. They have... It's a well-run company. Uh, we all use Microsoft. Um, but among those, I, I wonder how much pricing power they have because, yes, I do use Office and I pay a fair amount for it. If they double the price, I may not use it anymore, honestly, because I can use Google Sheets, I can use other things, or I can... Um, I, I Outlook, I don't need the Outlook software that I can use others. And so I wonder in the business land where they're basically very embedded, I think they have more power, but mm. um, yeah. How much power? How much power? That's interesting. I, I never, I never really thought about that because that, that is an interesting point, right? Like that's a, that's a feather in Microsoft's hat. It's an advantage that they have that they're so tied into the, to the corporate world at the same time. <clears throat> there isn't nearly as much untapped margin there, there in the corporate yeah, world as there is within yeah, not nearly as much. You don't have nearly as much ceiling. You know, like you were saying, you know, Google can take, you know, you, you get these more just retail facing one off. Those guys can take a, uh, something like, you know, Gmail, like you're talking about. And, you know, they, they could, you know, they could make one move and qu probably quadruple the revenue that unit makes in a yeah. single year. You know, I don't think Microsoft just doesn't because they've got corporations as their customer. It's just. It, it, the scale, the yeah, scale exactly. isn't the same, right? Like it's just there's not as yeah. much. Now, now that's an interesting. There is point. also professional um, software like Bloomberg that charges like twenty five thousand a year or more, right? They're very, very niche. Uh, I don't think Microsoft, Microsoft can charge a thousand dollars a year per user to a company that has a hundred thousand employees. I mean, it's just not possible. They will find something no. else. Um, so that one, for for example, a 13 times sales is like, okay, how much can Microsoft grow from here, given that it's already everywhere? Um, I mean, 13 times sales is a lot, right? Uh, like, yeah, to the point where, well, and here's what's confounding about it. Like I was just kind of thinking, you know, just playing with some different numbers. And let's say within five years. Google's or, or Microsoft's whatever, let's say that their involvement in AI and however that is, let's say that in five years, that's netting them the same amount that NVIDIA is making right now, right? So like I think NVIDIA is on a pace to do like 30 billion in profit, something like that over a 12 month span. Okay, that's that's outstanding. Like, don't get me wrong. Like if, you know, if Microsoft added 30 uh, out of one single unit that doesn't exist today, 30 billion in profit to their balance sheet in the next five years. I mean, that would be an unbelievable achievement. Yes, yes. I mean, creating a $30 billion business, unbelievable, right? That still is only a 40% bump to their earnings. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. It's like that, that's, Do you know that's, what I mean? Like, you're, that, you're that, is, that is, that is not a lot. But if you increase the profits, 
by 30% or 40%, the valuation will still be high. I mean, that's the thing with, in my opinion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you added that to this thing, it'd still be expensive. um, We've been, we've been in this situation before. I mean, I mean, Microsoft was, um, story that most people probably know is like in 2000 um, was highly valuation was very high um, they did amazingly well over 15 years and it took them like 15 to 16 years to reach the high again right so um, so everything can be true and yet the price make fall the share price so that's that's where the difficulty comes in right and like I was re- I was re- I was revisiting a famous interview the other day that I read every you know it's it's long with a lot of those Buffett and Munger things it's one of those things you tend to revisit every few years and read again you know but it was that famous Scott McNeely interview about um, I think he did it like oh three oh four something like that remember Sun yep. Microsystems CEO and I I chuckled because I'd forgotten that that was all based that that nosebleed valuation that he was talking about sun microsystems kind of the picture child of that time of having ridiculous he was talking about i know i know i know i know what you're talking about value stock today brother 10 times revenue that's that's like the uh that's like the blue light special at kmart man you see something at 10 times you got to jump on it before he was berating he's on short spending saying guys i don't know what you see here but you're like this is stupid that was a yeah. 10 times revenue 10 times now you're not in the you're not one of the cool kids unless you're at 15 yeah so that's that is that is strange you know, that um gets- but it is so we need to also be cognizant of that right um uh market is not an independent entity in that it doesn't have a mind of its own it's just people doing things and the market is just the, the tracks that they leave uh so every time we see a price right. there's a buyer there's a seller obviously um, they differ in their opinions or their value system or whatever makes them happy. Uh, so they transact. Um, and let's not forget that um, what matters really is psychology of the people, like we saw in 99, 2000 in, this, in these cases, right? And, and I think that these companies are right now in Microsoft or NVIDIA, things like that. They are in, in real bubble ter- territory. I think that's undeniable. Um, maybe Google is not, but I think Nvidia and Microsoft really are. Um, oh yeah. So there are only two ways to play a bubble, in my experience, is that you either go into it, a la Soros. It's like when you see a bubble, rush into it. By the way, this is not investment advice to anybody. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but but from a, from an investor perspective, a, a market participant perspective, that is like speculator. Uh, you only can do two things. You either get on it and write it or you step, step aside. One of the two. Uh, you don't go against it because yeah. when a bubble conditions form, um, we're no longer playing by the, by the usual rules. It's like animal spirits believe that it's unstoppable. All bubbles have a kernel of truth. They start with a real story. In this case, AI or these companies are eating the world or software is eating the world, whatever, things that are real. And then people extrapolate too far. Um, they believe their own stories. They they basically take it too far. And then there's also the fear of not making money when everybody's making money, uh, the greed of 
I'm a, I'm a 50%, 60%, this is going to the moon. And it's like, I never ever being able to sell when the bubble pops. It's an inability to realize that it has happened. Uh, but but what, my point is that it's a new set of rules. Valuations in this case is, are kind of irrelevant um, because we're not playing that game anymore. We're playing a new game of what many people are going are left to be by this to buy these things, and and it's working for those that are in, and the fact that it's working for those that are in is bringing more and more people in. Right, so the higher the prices, the more money comes in. Uh, as opposed to the regular environment, when prices go up, it's expensive. More people sell, less people buy. In a bubble situation, you you turn it around, and the more it goes, the more money comes in, and it only stops when money stops. And that is very hard to yeah figure out. That's why the last stages of a bubble, it can really go at two x three x in a very short period of time is the most dangerous area. It's like you can never, you never fade a bubble. Once you say this is a bubble, you never fade it. Uh, and I was trying to, I was, explain, I was explaining this situation to our clients on our annual, uh, on our annual review. And they were asking questions about NVIDIA. And um, I was telling them essentially the same thing. I go, guys, when you get into a situation, I go, look, I can't definitively tell you whether NVIDIA five to seven years from now will have justified this type of valuation and price move or if they won't. I mean, I, I, I would, I, I would feel comfortable laying down a sizable wager that they won't. Um, having said that I go, you cannot trade something that is that when a company's stock is moving two and a half percent and that two and a half percent represents two X their annual revenue. Right when a when a company's when the when the two and a half percent move on their stock represents two times their annual revenue, I don't I I I, I have no idea what that company should no be trading idea. at. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm sitting on seventy percent fluff or I'm sitting on a company that's going to ten trillion. I there's just you you get to a point, don't you? And I was this is what I was trying to explain, and I'm hoping you can do it in better you know, uh, more elegant terms than I can, but I think you get to a point of valuations where I'm not going to short it, but I, I, I can't, you're so far out. You're baking in so much future that, that I, there's no way to handle no, it. There's no way because you don't, you right, don't like, know instance, what the new rules are. Um, well, well, for instance, you know, what, what is, for instance, like, like, if you're telling me that NVIDIA is going to justify that price over a 10-year period of time, if the average interest rate is 200 basis points higher or lower during that period of time, that alone could decide whether so, – you know what I'm saying? There's so many factors over the course of a decade when you're looking at that much valuation. You know, you're like, hey, you might be right, but if you are, you just hit a bullseye with a bit, yes. with a blindfold on. Yeah. So, right? like, yeah. So – there are two ways to do the to deal with the bubble. One is the Soros way, which is kind of like what the algo does. It just gets on it and but it never buys into the narrative. It like never believes in it. It's just sort of like playing other people's psychology and trying to benefit from that. Yeah. Super discipline. It will it will stop. It's like parasitic investing. It's like parasitic investing. It's, 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 I know, I know. Like, I don't mean that. It's like, okay, you want to do that? Okay, fine. Um kind of thing. Yeah, we'll go along with, yeah, um, yeah, we'll go along with it. But but we're going to be a very nah, fair weathered like, friend. Like sometimes, like, I, the minute the party I, this reminds me of this really story I tell my daughter. It's like, you know, the key to happiness 
um, is to um, to never no, never fight with stupid people. And then the person in front of you said disagree, and the answer is okay. You're right. <laughs> never argue with a, with a, so basically this is the bubble is the same just that it's like okay fine you're right let's go along with that and so that's the Soros way he's like okay I see a bubble uh, the latest stages of the bubble is where it goes faster where you can make the most money but you should never buy into it you should always be ready to get out right um, because you know the play the game you you play so you get you you playing against the people that believe in it. The other way is the Buffett way. Wait, wait, yeah. wait, wait, but hold on, before you move on there, I, I, like, I want to stop and say what you said right there, because I think this is, in my opinion, and if I sat here and thought about it for long enough, I, I might be able to come up with one or two more. But in my opinion, I think that's one of the hardest yet most crucial things in investing to do, to accept the fact that to outperform over the long run, you have to accept periods of underperformance. There's no way around it, right? Like, meaning, if you, you know, you're right, you should sit out a bubble, it, but it's not going to be fun. No, that, that's it's the Buffett be fun. It's Like, he doesn't get into bubbles, he just waits. And in 2000, in the, in the 2000 bubble, people are mocking him because he didn't get into it. And said, he said, no, I don't do that with our money. And he ended perform for a few years, yeah. and people say, "Oh, you like, you lost your touch." Well, guess what? Ten years later, <laughs> he didn't suck, right? Yeah, run. And so, and, and run. remember, yeah. Buffett and Soros, in my opinion, are the two greatest money managers of all time. Uh, mm, you'd put them ahead. You'd put them ahead of Druckenmiller. Huh? I mean, Druckenmiller learned from Soros. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you could make the argument that he. Okay. He, that uh, he how much is? Let's 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 look at the scoreboard. Uh, and Miller is worth how much? I, I don't know, but but it's less than ten billion. Less than Soros. Yeah. I think it's like ten. I think it's like ten or eleven. Yeah, I think Soros, Soros is like, like twenty or thirty, and he has donated thirty billion. So it's just not the same scale. Um, I, I'm a big fan, yeah, big true. fan of Druck and Miller, but it's just Soros is a different level. Uh, in Soros, I think Soros, in my opinion, Buffett's probably right there, and uh, I, I have, I would assume we probably see similar. And if you hear me extolling the skills of George Soros, do not think that that means that I admire him as a human being. I do not at all. Uh, but I feel like he typifies that necessary agnosticism as it relates. Like that dude just does not get emotional about a trade. Not he's one. absolutely, I mean, he's absolutely got, ruthless. And one of the things that Drake, he's a, uh, and that's what you need to be in the market. Um, uh, to be fair, I agree. Yeah. That's what the algo basically we tried to reconstruct this Soros attitude. It's like okay, uh, it, it, a lot of people don't know this about Buffett. Even the name Berkshire Hathaway, right? Buffett's the same way. The name. The reason the company is named Berkshire Hathaway is because he put the screws to a guy. A guy crawfished on a deal with him, and Buffett drove him out. He's another ruthless operator. And then then kept the name of his company to stick it in his face, right? Like, and the guy deserved it. I'm not saying he didn't deserve it, but but to understand that story and how methodical and how Buffett literally, for uneconomic reasons, he really didn't. It it uh it was one Berkshire Hathaway the company was not a good investment for them. 
did you know that whole story? It wasn't a very good investment. The reason he ended up owning it all was just to stick That's it to the guy, the CEO. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I it's mean, a fascinating uh, story. I'm of the opinion that anybody that is worth 15 billion or more, or even 10 billion or more, it has to be a psychopath. Because if you're not a psychopath, you probably stop before then. You took care of your family, whatever, spend, go to the lake. It's like the only, the only thing you keep going is because you're well, a psychopath. Well, the everything, you know, it's you and everybody knows this. The first billion yeah. is the hardest. Yeah, I, and after that, I, I kind of said it's pretty out. easy, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it is. But, you know, you're right because there is, you know, I joke around all the time. I was like, you know what the difference between, you know, you know what the difference between a, a billion dollar lifestyle and a $5 billion lifestyle mm-hmm. is? Mm-hmm. Nothing. Right. Like, it's just, I mean, you, you can only buy so much stuff. Um, no, it's unbelievable, man. It's unbelievable. Hey, so another one I want to ask you about just coming from, um, you know, I, I you and I have been. You know, we have not had our careers directed toward the private equity world or, you know, the the private fund world. You know, uh, well, you worked for hedge funds. Uh, I did not. Um, and so we, we but, you know, I've done fundings and, and private placements and things like that. I, I was reading an article the other day or this morning, actually, that blew my mind. Have you heard about the nut that Sam Altman's trying to put together to overhaul? The I heard I, I read some headlines, but I'm not, paying, I mean, I'm not paying attention to Sam Altman. So I don't know what he's doing. Yeah, well, neither am I, but I just it it just caught me, and I was like, if this isn't a sign for the times, you know, you and I both know guys who have raised money for funds, right? Seeded funds, all that kind of stuff. Sam is embarking on a trip to raise a cool five to seven trillion. Excuse me. <laughs> hey, look, and I'm not laughing. I'm yeah, I'm not laughing because I I, I I'm saying he's an idiot, or I don't think he'll get it. I'm saying that that's just insane. Five to seven trillion because he wants to overhaul the global uh, 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 chip industry because chips are holding them back massively, according to Altman, which, you know, I've got no reason to, I mean, he knows more about chips than I ever will. Uh, but it's, he's saying that the, the, the limitation of chips is really at this point, what's holding them back in AI. Five to seven trillion. Um, okay. I think that if anybody said that, uh, the first, if somebody I don't know comes to me and say I want to raise three trillion. Not- now maybe somebody was taken out of context too. I just read a quick blurb on it. It came from a credible place, so don't quote me. I have not dug into the words, but that that's what okay. that's. So what let's assume let's, let's assume from, from credible site raise three trillion. My first answer is like you're an idiot. Uh, there's not enough money in the world to do that. Like nobody has. Why well, that's like, what about- like uh. Uh, you just lost all credibility to me. It's like maybe MBS, uh, maybe MBS will float another fifty percent of Saudi Arabia. We just talked about Microsoft being a thirteen-time sales juggernaut, one the most most valuable company in the world. is three trillion, right? So you want to raise three trillion in cash, and it just, it just doesn't work. I'll tell you what. You know, there's going to be a lot of people that make a lot of money. I, there's no question. I also think, due to the uniqueness in terms of the environment as well as just the timing of when this AI thing is hit, um, I think it is also going to incinerate an unprecedented amount of capital. I mean, if history is, you know what I mean. I, and, and that's always that's yeah. always what new technologies do. You got to break some eggs, make an omelet. I'm just saying, I think you're going to see this one make unprecedented fortunes, and I think you're going to see it burn unprecedented. Uh, the history of markets. Uh, is that 
is that every time you have a new technology coming in, uh, there's a tremendous amount of excitement. Share prices get enamored with this story, and a lot of people lose money. And it's not always the people that you thought were going to make money that end up making the money. If you look at the automobile automobile industry back in the 1920s I mean, they were like the darlings of the stock market right it's like new technology putting i mean it changed the world literally uh to this day i mean like this like no auto no no auto manufacturer basically survived that except for mercedes and ford and I've often wondered if I would have been. Lo- I, I often wonder if I'd have been loading up on buggy whip stocks. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But it's, I mean, that's a, that's a creative destruction we were talking about before. But what I mean is that people people get in love, yeah. fall in love with new technology, uh, whatever it is. Now it's AI, but it was back in the the, in the internet. It was the television and radio, uh, uh, planes, cars, telephone, whatever. All those things changed the world. There was a big, huge bubble around it. Tons of people. Uh, lost money, and then new players came in after the fact, and they actually did pretty well. But it was not always the same people that we thought at the beginning. So I think AI could be the same thing, where everybody's jumping all over themselves to get into these names. And you know what? You may be paying a lot. I think Nvidia really is one example of that. I mean, again, I don't know if it stops here or two X from here. Um, it will come down. I, I think a lot of I, – and here's the other thing that just makes me not want to touch NVIDIA uh, outside. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, like, it's hard to run an active portfolio without NVIDIA. Yeah, but I think, I think that people that understand this, um, the discipline means uh, that you sometimes do not play. Yeah, right, uh, right. So. No, 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 totally. And, and, and I think the other thing that bothers me about NVIDIA and um, – is that I think one of the simple things is just driving the stock is the fact that there is so much money floating around markets and, and the global economy, and there's just not a lot of place to put bets on AI, right? And so I think one of the, I think one of the biggest headwinds, speaking for NVIDIA's stock, is going to be the growth of the AI industry. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think that alone is going to be a headwind on the price of their stock because, you know, you and I both know, as more ways to play AI become available, you're going to see profits taken and you're going to see capital flowing out of NVIDIA. I mean, I, I, I guess I could be wrong. I don't yeah. really see any way around it. Don't you, don't you think that's the case though? That, I mean, it's just kind of, they're the only horse in the race right now. And so everybody, just, yeah, there is a real scarcity of place. That's the only place to put cap. Um, yeah. So that, that, yeah. that may be playing a role there, but I mean, if we look at the nearest comparison that the most recent one was the internet, right? Really game changing uh, technology. Yeah. Uh, not that many, a lot of companies, were born during that time. Not 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 many uh, survived, and even those that survived and made it big, like Amazon, um, they had their periods. Like I always make this example. I show this example. It's like imagine you're in year two thousand, and I tell you uh, everything that Amazon is going to become and all the money is going to make with perfect foresight. You know what's going to happen for the next twenty years, which is an impossible standard, but let's assume that we know. And you say, yeah, I this is going to be fantastic. I'm going to buy some Amazon shares now. Well, guess what? Less than three years later, you had lost 90% of your money. And we're talking about one of the few companies that survived that was hugely successful, and you knew that at the time. Um, so 
let's say today we're in a similar situation. It's like even even if all the things that investors think are going to happen do happen, share price could fall ninety percent. Two caveats: we don't really know if it's going to happen, and maybe it doesn't even happen. So, yeah. Forecasts are very rosy, and I think it's risky. But it's, it's risky now. Doesn't mean it's going to fall now. It can actually double from here because of the bubble dynamics. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So the way to play more, this is yeah. via discipline, which is basically risk management. You either want to sit out and and hold tight, saying, "Okay, yeah, it did." It, it's the right thing to do is to see that. Or two, you become more of a player of the game. So you do the Buffett or you do the Soros and you say, yeah, this is, I'm not, I don't care about NVIDIA itself. I think this is a whole story, but people buy the story. So I'm just going to jump on the train and when basically surf the wave and when the wave breaks, I'm out. And the people that bought the story will be unable to get out and they will get um, run over. But you know, and, and, and but here's the here's the here's the scary thing about when you're talking about valuations that are that far out there, right? And I don't think people realize they're like I'm stop lost, and I go, guys, when you're talking about that much built into a stock, the wrong headline could drop the thing forty percent overnight, and your stop loss just got jumped, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know That's why you don't put all they, your money. In one stock, right? Uh, you, right. When, when, for example, for, to give you an idea, for the algo, the the way the algo sizes positions is that, uh, and that's why sometimes it gets positioned smaller as they go up, which is kind of like antithesis to the trend following. Is because when I think about it, it's like I know that any of the positions that we hold, I need to be comfortable with them dropping fifty percent overnight. If I'm not comfortable. With that, which is possible, it has never happened since we started, but it could happen. Uh, then we need to reduce the position. That's why you see when when we have all these like parabolic moves, like we had in SMCI or like Dakers and stuff, the algo will come in and sell and take profit, partial profit, to reduce the position size. Because if we have a position that becomes like fifteen percent of the portfolio, I don't want to risk a down fifty percent overnight on that position. So it brings it down to a level where, obviously, if something falls fifty percent, we're gonna have a bad day. But we'll keep, we'll we'll stay in the game. Uh, so that that's why you diversify across multiple things. You cannot put all your money in one stock because of this. Uh, but that said, it's a valid game if you play correctly, um, which is uh, getting getting opinions out of the way and. Saying okay, I I see I see what's happening. You think that Nvidia is going up because A, B, and C related to AI. I see Nvidia is going up because you guys are buying it like crazy because you believe in that. So I'm going to agree with you, but I'm not going to buy into what you're buying. I'm just taking advantage of your behavior, which is um, which is different. Yeah. Uh, two, the both ways are valid. They require different skill sets and different framework, uh, but both are valid and. Both will risk underperforming from time to time because when when bubbles break, yeah, uh, they're typically going to get caught up for the peak. Uh, that's the right definition. Yeah. yeah, yep, 
Yep. And, and the combination, as we've seen, the combination of value and momentum running concurrently has really been, uh, you know, it's very few times you do something in the world of investing where it works just as well, if not slightly better than you think it's going to. Meaning it really has been interesting to watch. You can just see it, right? Both styles just yep. work at opposite times. So one part of the portfolio is constantly working. And then both have also done a very good job of sidestepping the, the, the yeah, dips, you know, or the, or the, you know, the nasty down moves. Let's pivot a little bit. I want to get your opinion on something because we, we're seeing a setup that I've seen several times over the last couple of years, or excuse me, over the last decade, rather. Uh, the China bears are out in mass again. Um, this is starting to feel, look, I, I know, I know the, the dangerous situation, potentially dangerous situation in China. I think, you know, every, we don't need to get into the property bubbles and all that other kind of stuff, but this is sort of starting to feel like the Widowmaker trade, right? Shorten, shorten the end uh, for so many years. It's kind of feeling a little reminiscent of that, meaning it's like every three or four years, right? Oh, here it comes. China's big comeuppance. Their stock market has gotten pounded. Um, I'm trying to look at this thing and I'm thinking to myself, look, again, not advocating the purchase of Chinese stocks. Our clients listening to this portfolio or excuse me, listening to this show, we're not loading up on Chinese stocks. I'm not saying that. But looking at the market um, and I don't know if I've got a clear direction, which is one of the reasons I want to ask you this question. Uh, if, if, if. Looking at the last 10 to 15 years as a guide, this looks like a buy time for Chinese stocks. What are your thoughts on what's going on in China and, and, and Chinese equities? I'm going to tell you one thing. Um, I have never invested in Chinese stocks. And I will probably never do it. Same. I traded Tencent. Uh, tell you why. Um so as you were saying at the beginning, I've done a lot of different things in my finance career. And one of them was kind of like, it was a fundamentally driven value, basically research heavy investing, where I would go all around the world, visiting companies, visiting their manufacturing, visiting their mines, it was mostly commodity space, mines, oil fields, pipelines. Um, and that basically took me all over the world. And it took me to China a few times. And I don't invest in China because of what I've saw. <laughs> it's the old adage of, oh, you don't invest in things you don't know. No, no, no. I invest. I, know, exactly. I don't invest in it because I know it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, and, and, and to put it simply, it's just not a system that is geared towards shareholder value. Chinese, China is not like the US, it's not like the West. Um, the, the Chinese stock market is not a real stock market. Um, China is not a democracy, it's a, it's, it's a real autocracy, uh, it's central planned. No economy in history ever has been able to succeed with central planning. You need to let people hustle it up and be successful and keep the fruits of their labor. That doesn't happen in China. What? Yeah, but no, China no, they, they, they haven't. Yeah, but they figured it out. 
<laughs> throughout these years, I made contacts with people that invest in China and private equity and public markets and uh, that can look at the official numbers and uh, a number of things. It's like, like the, 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 the mayor of a town has to report to the province, the G, like the local GDP or production industrial, like they're, they are subject to certain numbers, minimums or whatever their, their employment is depending on meeting these numbers. So they basically send fake numbers. And those are across thousands of different villages in China and then everything, every, all, all, all the macroeconomic numbers are not real. Not because, I mean, maybe because somebody in Beijing says, okay, let's make this number, but basically nothing that is reported is actually real. Um, how many frauds we have seen in um, stock in China? Uh, how, how, uh, well, not to mention, I, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I, want, I, I think it's imperative that people understand this because I've talked about this before, but you probably know more about it. The other thing is, is so many of these stocks that people think they own of Chinese equities, they own ADRs. Yeah, I was going to go into that. I was going to go into that as well. Uh, So, but basically in China, there is no property, there are no property rights. There is no rule of law. And that's not how you create wealth. And there is a lot of lying all across. Because if you don't, you tell the truth, you die. So there's not a lot of incentive to tell the truth. (laughs) Not as long as you're telling the truth. If you're telling so, these so it's just not a system that is geared towards success. They have, on top of huge demographic problems, there's just like, um, I mean, in, in the furniture business, we we don't import from China. And my brother doesn't. It's just, it just, you can never trust anything. Um, now, so it's just, it's just too complicated. It's like, why even bother? Um, and we have seen. Mm-hmm. Value destruction everywhere. But the debt they have, you don't really know how much debt they have. It's like you don't know really anything, uh, but you know that there is no property rights, no rule of law, and then you, there is no free enterprise beyond. I mean, you can you can make money as a, as a businessman, but it's never yours. It, you're allowed to keep it, but it's, it's yeah. not yours. Uh, it could disappear like this um, when when somebody in Beijing is like, you don't own that anymore, and that's that's it. Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, I don't think it's and I'm not bullish of China as a country in the current setup. I think they have a lot of talent, uh, like everybody else. Uh, but the problem also is that they're, they're not promoting creativity. They're like more, um, it's just lacks imagination because of the system they grew up with. I'm not very bullish in China as a country because of the setup that they have. And if you talk about asset prices, this is, I'm not interested. I'm not, go, I'm not going there. Now, as a U.S. investor investing in China, um, ah, one last thing. I don't see a lot of people fighting to go into China and leave and emigrate to China. If anything, I see the opposite. That, that tells a lot. Like we see a bunch of people going into Europe, Western Europe, a bunch of people going into Canada, U.S., Australia, even Japan. They will die to go to Japan. They just don't, don't let them in. Uh, they're not, not not one single person wants to go to China. If they open the borders in China, everybody's out. That tells you a lot. I've actually been, I've been condo yeah, shopping sure. in Shenzhen recently. So uh, no, but I'm so so, so that that tells you a lot. <laughs> it's like when when the Berlin Wall fell, who ran to which side? To which side, right? Same idea. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. No, clearly. Yeah. Well, I mean, no. Yeah, you're not going to be. I mean, quite honestly, I think the vast majority of Chinese people, I, I, you know, the immigration pressure is no, out of out. China. It's not it's in. out. If, you, if 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 the Chinese yeah, government out. let the Chinese yeah. people leave the country, there will there will be a wave of. I mean, what? Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think all you need to know, and and and, and I'm, I'll probably mess up the I'll probably mess up the numbers. And there's the, the this is going on right now as we speak. But when people were paying the fee to get their money offshore to buy massively inflated property in the Vancouver, BC area, that told you all you need to know. They were taking like effective in some cases, and again, don't quote the numbers. Maybe you remember them, but I remember hearing in some cases like sixty to seventy percent haircuts. To get their money out of China, and of they were still. Uh, I I I I think it's probably that. Yeah, they were doing it in London. They were doing it in Vancouver, because thirty uh, percent of something is more than zero percent of something, which is what could happen in. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But I'm just I I like I just I, I remember people glossing over that and 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 seeing it and thinking to myself. I don't think you're inferring enough from this. If you're willing to take a 70% haircut, you can't next tell me the place your money's got to be is China, right? Those two they things don't. do not no, live don't. on the same they block. Don't. So right? I think Chinese equities may look optically cheap. They may look attractive. They may rally for that matter. They can double. But it's just a game I don't, I'm not interested in because – no, they, they are no, – What about the that, Okay, thing? so – because the economy is closed, you cannot. I mean, money cannot leave China. Um, they're willing to take it if you give it to them, but they will not give it back. Um, so, uh, U.S. money doesn't want to invest in U.S. Stock, in, in Chinese stocks. So they basically create a vehicle that is listed in uh, in in New York, typically, where you they pretend it's kind of a share of a. Of um of a company in China, but it's it's not really that. It's kind of like a pretend share, but the money never leaves the U.S. Really, um, and they say, okay, well, it's going to track these, let's say, um, Alibaba, right? But it's not to simplify it. Uh, it's just not that. Is that it's just a piece of paper that says, and you don't. They should track the Alibaba share price, but if you read the small print. It's just a piece of paper that doesn't give you any economic rights. It doesn't give you. You have no. You have no claim on nothing. the company's assets. No, no. And the event let's say. Let's say that anything. Uh, yeah. In the stock market, I mean, private equity does this all the time. If you go to the New York Stock Exchange and you buy all of the shares, you own the company because a share is a is a real piece of the company. So you own all the pieces, you own the whole company. That's how companies get taken private. That's what Elon Musk with, did with Twitter. He bought all the shares, now he owns Twitter. You can buy all the all of the shares of Alibaba yeah. traded vehicle in New York and you will own nothing. Yeah and I, I just I you I will don't own think nothing. It claim, it, it, so you would have a claim on nothing. Um if they pay a dividend in China and they don't pay in, in New York, you have. Sorry, guys. There's like, there's like. This is what this is what this is what shocked me. But this was the surprising thing about it, because because um, I was reading an interview. I can't remember before he passed away from Charlie Munger, and Charlie Munger was pounding on the table about Alibaba, and I was sitting there going, 
Munger wouldn't put big money in ADRs. And you can't buy stock directly in China, right? I think you, you can't. Effectively, you cannot. I, can you imagine Munger buying ADRs? I mean, the ADRs are always like that. that. Sometimes they're like proper ADRs, which is the American Depository Receipts, where you actually do have a claim on the company, uh, but not in the Chinese ones. Right, it so it doesn't apply. apply. I just it doesn't can't, apply I, to China. I, I, like it, it's called VEIs. Uh, it's a vehicle. Must, it's, it's, just, it's just a weird thing. And basically the implication, the, the implied promise is that, okay, we... We're going to make it right uh, because if we don't make it right, we will not be able to raise money in the future, basically. Uh, I think it's more of like, uh, it's more of a shake hand agreement. <laughs> it's not a legal, there's no legal binding. There's, it's not legally binding. It's, yeah, but I, yeah, but okay, in the past, maybe that's true, man, but we live in a world where the, the, you know, the day after SBF gets uncovered, you got a bunch of people sitting there going, I'd fund them again. You know, I mean, the world has changed. I, I just, th that whole idea of, well, they won't do it because it won't allow them to raise money again. I mean, I'm like, that, that ain't enough security for me. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, it will, it's, it, it is working all right. But in a moment of crisis, it basically you, you don't own anything. You have no rights as a shareholders. So okay, that's so a risk. Let, let me flip. To, let me. Yeah, yeah, big risk. Let, let me. By the way, to a by the way, something maybe you didn't know. You the algo does not invest in ADRs because of these reasons. Yeah. No. Good. Uh, you know, and, and and just the reason I say that is I I don't think I've ever seen one blow up, or or I don't think I've I'm sure that's happened. Certainly not with Chinese, not any not any well known ones. But the trouble with that is is that. Again, it's one of those scenarios, right? Where one headline. Well, we have seen, we have seen, we have it, seen it, Chinese ADRs blow up, uh, but not because of this. You don't own anything, but because it was all, it was all fraud. It was fraud. just a front. There was, there was nothing behind. There was nothing like behind. Company. But because these things are not, yeah, they don't, they don't follow the U.S. rules because they follow the Chinese rules. They can, they can make a whole story, and then you think you own something, and there's just nothing. Because there the, the the audits, you cannot trust the audits. You cannot trust anything that's being said. It's just like their attitude with fraud is so strange. It 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 and it's not. It, it makes sense to them culturally. To us though, it's anathema, right? Like it, it, their attitude about fraud is just so different. Um, sometimes they're hard on it. Other times it's looked the other way. Because there's no rule at all. I know. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Flip, flipping, flipping subjects a little bit. Um, I think, and, and obviously, you know, time will be the ultimate arbiter of this and, and tell us exactly uh, what the facts are. But I think that there was a really interesting economic uh, experiment run last year. At least I found it very interesting. And it's kind of gotten us thinking, and, and you and I have spoken to, about this a, a bit as well. But um, last year we saw, well, over the previous two years, we saw the most aggressive Fed, you know, Fed hiking cycle in history, right? In terms of the move over a period of time. While simultaneously, I mean, it pales in comparison to COVID, but also one of the biggest liquidity injections in history 
from several different areas, right? When you count, you know, the BTFP, when you count, um, you know, the, the Inflation Reduction Act, when you look at the 10% one-time um, uh, cost of living adjustment to Social Security, you just had tremendous amounts of liquidity inflows. And <clears throat> the Fed seems to view, and for that matter, most central banks that I'm aware of seem to view this as too, is that liquidity and interest rates are two very different things. And, and they are by definition. But I'm starting to look at the, the world, especially in lieu of what we've seen over the last year and a half. And I'm starting to think that the, the, the breaking dynamic, right, the, the, the part of interest rates that slow down an economy, I think is the fact that when rates go up, liquidity tightens, right? I, I think it's the impact that rates have on liquidity that slows down economies. And with that thought in mind, Chase and I were looking at the fourth quarter of last year, watching the financial conditions loosen substantially, watching the stock market surge. And based off of the stock market surging and financial conditions loosening dramatically, we figured that, hey, if we're right, now it doesn't prove we're right, but if we're right, that liquidity trumps interest rates, then we should see a, a significant pickup in first quarter economic data. So far, that's what we're seeing. What do you think about that? Because uh, the, 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 the line of logic, at least from our, vantage, from our position, is one thing I think that we know is that monetary policy, as it has been exercised over the past 15 years, has had a much bigger impact on asset prices than it has underlying economic activity, right? And so with that, the U.S., you know, the, 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 well, and, and the U S system and pretty much the global financial system as well, you've just seen an incredible amount of financialization, right? Just so much more. And I think it's to a point for a variety of different reasons. I think the baby boom generation holding the vast majority of the country's wealth in the United States has a big impact on this as well. But it seems to us that asset price moves are driving significant parts, if not the entire economy as opposed to the inverse, right? Where economic performance would drive asset prices. It feels like asset price appreciation is driving economics right now. What are your, what is your take on that whole interplay between rates and liquidity? Do you see it like we do? And do you also see asset prices going up, having an outsized impact basically as the tail wagging the dog? How's that for an easy question? Um, Okay. Um, this is our theory. This is our theory right now, and I think it's a fascinating one, at least to me. But like I said, I, I so far, like for, from our perspective, it's matching up, and we're seeing. But but again, it's not one where I'm sitting there telling the world, "Look, you're looking at it wrong." This is we've figured it out. I, I don't know, but it, it seems to make some sense. This is an example where theory and practice do not match. Like if, if you look at sort of like valuation theories, blah, 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 they say, okay, um, when rates go up, your discount factor goes up, the value of future cash, cash flows go down, the price you should be willing to pay for this is less. That's what theory says. That has two weaknesses. One is that it assumes that everything else remains equal, which is never the case. Uh, typically, when rates go higher is because 
there is demand for money and there is demand for money because the economy is doing well, right? Ultimately, interest rates is the, is the price of money. When there's a lot of demand, prices go up, so rates go up. When there is not a lot of demand, it goes down. So in reality, typically, uh, people willing to pay a high interest rates is because they see opportunities to invest the money they're borrowing. So they must things must be going really well for people to do that. Um, now, the other thing is that asset values, as much as we want uh, to believe that is based on sort of like discounted future cash flows, it's not, it doesn't work like that. Uh, um, asset <laughs> no. prices... Asset prices are set when two participants agree to do a trade. One is selling, the other one is buying. And when there is a lot of money flushing around, there will be more people that are willing to buy. And the people that are willing to sell, uh, they will demand a higher price because they see all that. So basically, prices go up and the opposite. When there is no money around, there are no buyers and the sellers probably need money and they're more willing to sell. And that's why prices go down. It doesn't really have that much to do with discounted factor. Uh, um, in, in equities, at least, equity, like things like more fixed income is more like that. It's actually like that. But in stock prices, it's just not like that. It's basically a willingness of people to buy and sell. And when there is a lot of liquidity around, as in a lot of money around, people are more willing to buy and the opposite. And it's not really related to interest rates as much. Um, and also, again, because when interest rates are high, it means that probably people have a lot of money that want to, they want to invest and buy things. So if we look at history, typically, when, as, when interest rates are going up, stock prices are going up, except maybe at the beginning when people have to readjust and there is not that, money, that much money going around. Um, but to your question, interest rates and liquidity can be decoupled. And they often are. Uh, now, this game has become a lot harder in the last since the GFC because central banks have given themselves the mandate of managing liquidity and managing asset prices. They started with interest rates, then they added unemployment, and now nobody gave them the mandate, but they gave it to themselves to manage asset, asset prices. And they're very concerned about that because, especially in America, uh, everybody owns stocks through 401ks and stuff. And like, it's a real driver of wealth. Before 401ks and stuff, people were not that involved in the stock market. Now it's in everybody's portfolio and everybody's net worth calculation. Before it was just mutual funds, and that's something that you wanted, to, that you did if you wanted to. But now you join a company, and then you have a 401k, and typically. Um, the big financial institutions are there with all, all these portfolios and they say uh, you put it in equities for the most part. It's only the people that care about what they have, they may change it, but basically it's everywhere. Uh, the result is also, I mean, commissions went down, electronic platforms to buy and sell stocks came up, ownership of, of stocks is more widespread. Now it's a real political risk Right, like if the stock goes down, if stock prices go down, you don't get reelected. Basically, mm -hmm. to put it simply, so there is a real interest in pumping money into the economy so stock prices go up, and then same thing the central banks are doing, and they have shown their willingness to come in and support the 
the market. They did it in 2008 for the first time, kind of the first time. It's like, okay, is this a one-off? And then over time, we realized that it was not a one-off. That that brings me to another question I was going to ask you on this topic because it's really making me start to wonder if the Fed is – and I'm not really sure if I have an opinion on this, but if the Fed is aware of this in terms of um, they look, people come in and defend them all they want. The sensitivity these guys have shown repeatedly over and over. Now, granted, they didn't last year, but based on what inflationary numbers you were looking at and then where you know where markets were trading, I think that they just even with a 20% pullback in the S&P 500 – you know, I, I don't think that they were worried about that getting out of control at any moment. And they also knew that if they did, they could throw massive cuts at it in a really quick hurry and all that other kind of stuff. But part of me is wondering if they have not, you know, caught, come to the realization of, hey, guys, we got to stay on the we, we have to stay on the accommodative side. Even if we're talking tough, we've got to stay accommodative because the only way we get out of this is right. There's two ways to deal with that. Pay off debt or push or, or create equity. Uh, ultimately, right? it's the debasement of the currency that support asset prices and stuff. But I think that one of the things right. that it was very revealing in 2020. Which I think it's fair to say, right? Like it, I, I, they have to be aware of that and, and they're never going to admit it. But I, I, you don't have a choice. That's the path we're going to take. We're going to inflate our way out, right? Like that's just, that's that's the way of it. If there's no other way. I mean, right. Not in, not any other way that's ever been pursued, right? Because the other, the, the, the alternative is just pain there, there, for an extended period of time. And there, there, there to- is a solution. And is when, I mean, these things all create inflation. And there may be a point where people say uh, inflation matters to us more than anything else. Like it happened pre Volcker. They rate that, and and you get into a cycle of paying down the debt. But that's rare. That happened in the UK uh, after World War II and stuff. But it, that's that's and rare. That's I, that's I, driven by the public. And 2022 was a good example of that. Actually, it was I think very revealing when the shift focused to inflation. I mean, the, the focus shifted to inflation instead of the stock market because that was what the public was worried about. I mean, uh, Biden was talking about inflation, purchasing power, people. People at that particular moment would rather have no inflation and stock market going down 20%. But that was the only time, and they re- they reacted to that. To me, it was a very important signal that what matters is what the public wants. And it, yeah, the folks are the people are voting themselves large as the state treasury. Yeah, that's, so that's now that's what swing. the people want. If you want to get reelected, if you want to be a popular politician or central bank, this is what you do. Uh, and maybe maybe the wind will change at some point, but right now is that is that is the one. People don't say a peep. They do not complain when you forgive their student debt. They don't complain when you give them a PPP loan. They don't. They do not complain. They like it and they expect it, and that's how the politicians are going to react. Uh, we had a brief period of like high inflation, and people were reacting like that, uh, like against that, and then the market became. Secondary factor, but now we're back to market again. Is primary factor. the The other thing I, the other thing I will say is, and and uh, I this is a bit frustrating because I really don't think there's any way to know over time. Um, one of my pet theories looking at this market is is that uh, I, I think that inflation is materially understated, 
And I'm not saying I'm not one of those guys sitting there going, oh, they're saying it's three and a half, but it's really 14. I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, I think maybe somewhere between 150 to 250 basis points understated. And there's a couple of reasons why I think that a I look at the world today and I have never seen such conflicting macro crosswinds that, that just are perplexing. Yet, if you look at through if you look at it through a lens of like a five to six percent inflationary world, at least from my perspective, I think things make a lot more sense. Um, I also think that years and years of rejiggering the way that we compute CPI and the reliance on hedonic adjustments, I don't think it. I don't think it's possible to make an argument that hedonic adjustments have not made inflation somewhat understated. Meaning. I can't tell. I, I personally don't have the knowledge to tell you how much, but when I see the Fed saying that the price of a car did not really go up in real terms over the course of 25 years, you know, like like when the topic of hedonic adjustments come up, I absolutely get it and find it extraordinarily appropriate as it relates to something like a cell phone, right? Like meaning the analogy I always use is go look at what a family uses. Go look what the average family spent household in 1980 on phone on their phone, right? It's probably 15 bucks a month, right? Maybe 12, okay? Then you look at what the average family spends per household on phones today, right? You you could look at that and go, look at that inflation, but it's not, right? Because look at what we can do with that phone. Well, when you do the same thing to automobiles though, right? Automobiles do not increase our productivity at work. They don't make us more money. They serve the exact same purpose that they did 40 years ago. It's to get us to point A to point B. So when you sit there and tell me that the price really hasn't gone up over 25 years and I could buy a brand new Pontiac for 4,200 bucks in 1980, you know, and I can't get a car with 150,000 miles on it for that same price today, that ain't an hedonic adjustment issue, right? That's called inflation. I I understand what you're saying. I think that in the case of cars, once they had air conditioning, they stopped being better. (laughs) Like like now they have this lane. Right, right laying thingy, whatever, they move your steering wheel. It doesn't really add hey, anything. Don't get me wrong. I, I, no. no, and I want the listeners to understand. Guys, I, I'm not I, I'm not saying that cars are, cars are amazingly better. What I'm saying is the economic the purpose the same, they basically. serve hasn't changed. The utility is exactly the same. Phones could not be more opposite than that. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the cars, they still have an engine, four wheels, and four seats, and they take you from your house to your home. And the fact that whether it's leather or uh, fabric, doesn't really change anything. Hey, well, you know how many – when I was building Bulwark in the early days, man, I was putting 40,000 miles a year on my car, right? That's not what made it possible for me to build Bulwark. It was put – while I was driving those 40,000 miles, I had my cell phone. Yeah. That's what made it possible to build the company on the road, right? Uh, otherwise, the car could do the exact same thing for me, helping me build my company no. 40 years yeah. ago. Yeah, no, no I think I done it without the phone. So right. your point is that – I mean, I think everybody agrees that um, we need to account for increases in the utility of one uh, dollar spent. Like in the case of the phone, um, I think I think it, that needs to be accounted for. I think it's very hard to do uh, across the board because it's on a case by case basis. So I think that it is easy for official measures of inflation to not reflect actual inflation uh, for two reasons. One is that uh, how CPI is calculated is they take a basket of things and they basically do the weighted average. That basket 
is meant to track uh, actual consumption, but it's changes are slow. Consumer behavior can change faster than the basket can. So you can have periods where how the basket is calculated and how people are spending their money is not the same. So there is a mismatch there, a timing thing. Um, and then there is this hedonic adjustment where basically a bunch of people sit in a room and say, okay, how much better is this phone before compared to last year or this TV or this house or this house or this car or this whatever you buy, uh, this hotel, these airplane tickets. And they basically make an adjustment. And that is a bit more finger in the air, right? It's like, what do you think? And that is another source of, that's another source no, of it, potential well, tracking, tracking error. Basically. Well, look, and this, and this is, yeah, and, and, and this is just a fact. You can take it how you will, right? But every single adjustment you've seen to how they compute CPI has, all of those adjustments have yeah, been. Yeah, because the then, then the incentive, okay, so right, basically meaning, there is, I think, I, I think the people that do this, they really want to do a good job. I, I do believe that, is that they want, they, they, they want to agree. capture yeah, the basket and they want to capture these hedonic adjustments in, in the right way. Um, but it's prone to errors because. It, one is something that lags reality because by definition can never be ahead of it and the other one is, is more like a guesswork and if you need to try to do guesswork it's hard and then, yeah the, the way i yeah the way i look at it is is if you're trying to like let's say i think household formations are a pretty good way to to look at inflation right like if you want to go today and like, you know, the Fed statistics would lead us to believe that since the end of COVID or the beginning, you know, the, January 1, 2020, uh, inflation's up 20%, 2020, 20, 21%, somewhere in there, right? But if you look at like a household setup, if you're going to go buy a house, if you're going to go buy a car, right? if you're going to buy furniture for your house, lawn, you're going to go set up a house and put food in the pantry, all of that, put it all together. That basket is up more than twenty yes. percent in the last yeah. four years. Yeah, and then then the, the, the then the story Wait. of incentive, right? So these people that do these, they know they know these. They're not stupid. Uh, so they say, okay, we think that this is let's say between two point two point thirteen and two point seventeen. So they try with this arrange. It's like we don't know. Is that we think it's like, and then it goes up the chain, and then somebody more closer to elections and or like actual spend of the government and say, okay, oh, two, between two thirteen and two seventeen. How how sure you are you like is it okay? I think it's two thirteen and the guys in front is like okay fine two thirteen I mean so so you let's heat let's heatize that a little bit let's just let's just yeah so they clip a little bit, bit not right? not like intentionally but obviously they want to spend all the like the the tips inflation linked bonds are linked to inflation social security all the government spending programs are linked to inflation uh, every single uh, government would like to have lower taxes and better balance sheets. So natural inclination is to go for the lower number all the time. When and there is uncertainty. So basically somebody oh, let's take the smaller number. Is this I mean we don't even know. So so at some point you need to put something on the sheet, right? And they're gonna go for the lower number. And then yeah. there's more haircuts here and there are small, but then you have thousands of different lines and in the end. So basically typically in, I would, if I were to bet, I would say that the official number is understating actual inflation. Yeah, and nobody on the um, benefits from higher inflation. No, nobody, number. nobody. Yeah. All righty, my friend. Well, I've kept you way longer than I, than I promised yeah. you I would. I appreciate. 
Yeah, it was. I appreciate your patience and a great way to kick off the year's uh, circuit of interviews. Uh, for the folks who want to follow uh, you, Mark Twitter handle. Gutman 9. Yes, Gutman, G-U-T-T. This is his uh, alter ego. Yes. It's his. Yeah, I started anonymous and then I said, yeah, what the heck? But I kept the, I kept the handle. Yeah, there you go. All right, buddy. Well, thanks for joining us as always. And um, and if, if the folks want to visit you, it, 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 Marcos's website is also ascentsystematicadvisors.com, correct? Okay. Or no, ascentsystematic.com. Anyway, but if you need the algo, right. just talk to Zach. And you put your- yeah, that's right. We, we, that's, we, we, are, we are the conduit. Anyway, my friend, have a wonderful year. Great catching up with you. Uh, we'll obviously be chatting again on Tuesday. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, man. It was good here. to have you. Thank you, Zach. You bet, pal. All right, you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hopefully you enjoyed that as much as I did. Remember, don't forget to subscribe. Just helps getting, you know, not better guests than Marcos, but it helps us get more guests like him on the show. doesn't cost you anything. So uh, thank you. We'll be back next week. Got another great interview lined up. You're not going to want to miss it. Have a great weekend. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.